all desire control in our lives. Even the freest among us still hold fast to control. They desire the ability to integrate spontaneity into their lives, the ability to pack up and hit the open road, feel the wind in their hair. I remember working for the Bureau of Land Management in the summer, joining with other seasonal workers as we did habitat development and fire suppression. Those mostly men lived what my mother, nervously watching her 18-year-old daughter join their ranks would call a wildlife. They would fight fires in the summer and work at ski resorts in the winter. And in the off season, they would take trips to Thailand to have their dental work done because it was cheaper that way. And after all, it was a good trip too. Even these wild men valued control. They valued the control that they felt over their lives. For all of us, control takes form of boundaries. We can do this and we definitely won't do that. We weigh the cost benefit analysis in our heads. Control isn't in and of itself a bad thing. The evol and evolutionarily, perhaps it was necessary. It helped our ability to thrive and survive as we tied our sense of agency to a sense of security. The need for control is not new. And the disciples, having spent the last 40 days with the risen Christ, are looking for a little control. After the helplessness and despair that they felt immediately following Jesus's crucifixion, Jesus's resurrection reminds them of the control that they have, of their ability to continue to live out the gospel in what they preach and teach and their ability to heal. In his 40 days with them, Jesus is empowering and reminding them. But the disciples are wanting more. They want answers. They want to keep the control that they feel when Jesus is physically present with them. They want to know what this movement they are part of will lead to, where it will go, Will they stay in the synagogues and streets, continuing a movement of reform to Judaism? They wonder where this space for this new religious movement is amongst the pantheon of religious beliefs at the time. Will they be safe from persecution? Or in following this new way, are they demanded and asked for a fate similar to Christ's? And if God's kingdom is coming as Christ tells them when. We all love specifics after all. They give us a sense of control. Reading from the book of Acts, chapter one, verses six through 14. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? He replied, it is not for you to know the times or the periods that the father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. 
When he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going and they were gazing up toward heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood by them. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up toward heaven? This Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. When they entered the city, they went to the room upstairs where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. All these were constantly devoting themselves to prayer, together with certain women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, as well as his brothers. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Please pray with me. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorified in your sight, for you, O oh God, are our rock, and you are our redeemer. Amen. I feel really lucky. I feel lucky for the family that I have, for my mother and father and my brother Kyle, but I also feel really lucky that I have been able to join a family in marrying my husband Dan that I also really love. I have a distant memory of a holiday right after Dan and I had gotten engaged. I was watching Batman with my new, my now brother-in-law, Tim, and Dan came down the stairs excitingly sharing that he and some high school friends were going to get together for some drinks at a local brewery, and did we want to leave in the next 10 minutes? Now, I love these friends too, but that evening I already had my comfy pants on and a cup of tea in hand. And I looked at Tim and I said, nah, I'm good. You go have fun. And I don't know if Tim felt it, but for me, this was an important moment. I was part of his family. And I, I feel lucky, I genuinely enjoy his company. I enjoy his sense of humor and adventure. And so this past Christmas, when he was bringing home his partner, Jenny, for us to meet, I became even more excited. Tim's got good taste after all. Jenny's laugh is contagious and like Tim, she's always up for an adventure or learning something new. Uh, she's a PhD student at the University of California in Davis and does animal behavior research. Jenny specifically studies how animals listen to sounds and how amidst the cacophony of noise in our world and in our lives, we're able to zero in and focus on particular noises. To do this work, she trains research animals, rewarding behavior with treats, that positive reinforcement, a sense of choice leading to a sense of control, both for the researcher, but also for the animals. We do the right thing and we get a reward. Like how when I finish writing and delivering this sermon, there's a piece of sourdough waiting for me. Positive rewards for the things that we do. 
We use them for ourselves. We use them for our children and our pets. Maybe occasionally we even try to use them with loved ones or partners. This concept of positive reward has influenced modern self-help genre, and ultimately it gives us a sense of control. In a paper entitled Born to Choose, The Origins and Value of the Need to Control, published in the National Institute of Health, researchers describe how perceived control is a biological and evolutionary necessity providing congruent with one's well-being and ability to thrive is our need to control. But we know, and the disciples know, that the best laid plans can go asunder, that the rules of this world can be tipped on their heads, that we are sometimes left with no answers in the seeming chaos of it all. We perform the tasks we are trained for. We do everything in a way that we feel is right, and yet everything somehow seems to still turn out wrong. There is not always a reward at the end. In these moments, we struggle to feel safety and security, and we long for control. Dr. Bruce Miller, or BJ, describes himself as a suburban boy. Having moved around the country with his family, I envision him like a character on Leave it to Beaver or Family Ties. Until he left his family in the, one of the great rites of passage that many young adults go through, packing bags and trunks and heading off to college. In some way, as Dr. Miller talks of his childhood, I envision any of the young men who grew up in this church. Dr. Miller is now, years later, the head of the Zen Hospice Center and an assistant clinical professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. As a young man in the fashion of free spirits everywhere around the world, BJ and his friends made a choice coursing around late one Monday night, blowing off some pressure from their academic lives, BJ and his friends climbed up on top of a train that transported students from their university to Penn Station in New York. This small two-car locomotive called the Dinky would not only take BJ to and from his ivy-covered ivy halls at Princeton, but it would also forever change his life is that evening 11,000 volts of electricity coursed through his body. This young Ivy League man with so much ahead of him was forced to yield to powers greater than himself, powers so beyond his control. And this thing called the dinky took three of his limbs that night. Dr. Miller reflects on the little innocuous moments of our lives that end up having dramatic consequences. And Dr. Miller was left asking what would be of his life. In what ways would he compose or make a life in the face of this dramatic change? Because in all of our lives, the uncontrollable happens. Maybe it's a joy, an announcement of a birth, feeling led to a new vocation, moving to some new town, falling in love, 
finding the kindred spirit of a true, deep friendship, or that sense of being seen and belonging in community. The unexpected can be joyful, too. And it can also be found in the deep and abiding grief of natural disasters, of violent conflicts, of health crisis. And we are left asking, how are we, as people of faith, called to respond to the unexpected, the uncontrollable? We're left asking what we have faith in, in whom or in what. Our youth director, Danny Harmon, and I have met with all 19 of our wonderful confirmands over the course of the last month. And in the meeting, we talked about who or what God was to each of these confirmands. And Danny has this beautiful analogy, deep wisdom shared with him from a friend who said that God is not a vending machine. Unlike the animals in Jenny's lab, no matter how well we perform, no matter if we do the right tasks in the right order, we are not inoculated from life the uncontrollable is bound to find us, both in the joy and in the tragedy. So what do we do? If there is no guaranteed input and output, what do we do? We look for the wisdom of the disciples from our text today, not in their demanding timelines or prescribed outcomes, but in what they choose to do after Jesus's ascension, after he has left them again, but this time in their uncertainty, we see them practice faithfulness. There's a story. In East Germany, following World War II, a world torn apart, cities bombed, little access to food or medicine, little hope for what could come next behind the Iron Curtain. And even in a time when turning to faith was dangerous, when people were being shot on the steps of churches, stuffed away in dark vans for whispers of dissent by the communist government, folks turned to their pastor, and in their helplessness they asked, what can we do? And they, like the disciples, searched for what they could control. This group didn't mount a protest in its traditional form. They didn't set out a letter writing campaign. They didn't walk the halls of power or create an underground radio. No, the pastor posted the names of all of those who was suspected the government disappeared on the church doors. And he invited the congregation to pray for them. And he invited the congregation to gather and pray for peace. They didn't know what to do next. They felt helpless in the face of so much suffering, victims at the hands of a dictatorship. But they, like the disciples of old, knew what they could do. They knew what they could control. Their prayers became more and more known, and others joined them, not preaching revolution or revolt, but lifting up prayers of peace and healing. Maybe, maybe prayers are revolutionary acts after all. 
as their numbers grew and the government of East Germany warned them. Their acts seeming of sedition against the state, they threatened them, if you meet this week, we will come with military power. So come was their reply. We will be praying. But they did not come. And again, the state threatened, and again, the people prayed. These people weren't leaders of government. They weren't rebels. They were faithful disciples. Maybe there isn't always such a great difference after all. But these faithful recognized that there was so much they could not do. There was so much that they could not control. And yet they could live their faith and pray for peace. And then the Berlin Wall fell, and Germany was reunited, and maybe their prayers changed nothing in the big scheme. These simple people lifting up words to God. And yet maybe their prayers changed everything. In his musical, The Last Five Years, composer Jason Robert Browning follows a couple. And in the story, we start in the middle of their relationship. From the moment of their falling in love, we work backward to their meeting, and we work forward to the unraveling of their relationship. This musical makes apparent the uncertainty of life. None of us can predict where life will take us. None of us can anticipate the joy and the heartache ahead. There is so much that we don't control. Despite our desire biologically and evolutionarily, but maybe control isn't about the details. Maybe it isn't about some five or 10 year plan mapped out, but maybe it is about what we can do. Browning gives us advice that resonates with the gospel truth we find today. We can live faithful lives. As the couple in the musical promises in the face of the unknown and unknowable to love each other for the next 10 minutes and the next 10 minutes after that, so too we promise to love and to live faithfully for the next 10 minutes. And then maybe we can do the same for the next 10 minutes after that. We find ourselves modern day disciples without the comfort of experiencing Christ as we've known him. In the choirs gathered and the sanctuaries filled and the sacraments poured out and shared. While Christ bodily left them all those years ago, some of the physical comforts of church and community have left all of us. The hugs and the handshakes, the laughter of children playing on the ramp or swinging, from the handrails, we miss the coffee and the food shared. But may we, like the disciples, choose to live faithful lives for the next 10 minutes, recognizing our lives themselves are prayers to God. As the disciples gathered after Christ's ascension to pray, we too can let our lives be a living testament to Christ's presence. 
And in the midst of this unknown specifics of the future, may we choose to live faithfully, realizing that when we are choosing what is good, that that is of God. And it is in those tiny faithful acts that we can find control. As bread is broken at our tables at home, that too is a holy meal. As we sit in the sunshine and feel the warmth of God's love, as walks are taken and the snow of apple blossoms fall, we breathe in the sacred that surrounds us. As we reach out to our neighbors, Christ is physically present. As we listen to the wisdom of our children's stories and let ourselves take naps and rest in the peace and presence of the Holy Spirit, we hear God whisper that we are enough. Let us dream anew of what we can control. And let us let go of all the rest. Dr. Miller has dedicated his life to walking with people through their final moments. Death the great equalizer of us all, that which is so beyond our control. And this man whose body is marked by the uncontrollable reminds us by his faithful witness of what we cannot control, not the end, not the specifics, but what we can control can be found in our own peace with our own limitedness. And prayerfully walking into the unknown, knowing that while Christ has ascended, while we, like the disciples, long to touch and to see and to hear, that Christ is still walking with us in the uncontrollable of all that lies ahead. Amen. <laughs>